there, it's Ellen here to introduce episode 40 for y'all. This is another really exciting guest episode featuring the one and only Karina Newsom, biologist and educator and birder and just all around phenomenal person. So Christian, unfortunately, was not on this call with me, but we still had a really amazing time talking about Harris's hawk, as well as the joys of science communication and wildlife work. So you guys are going to really enjoy this one. Thanks, y'all. All right, y'all, we are here with Karina Newsom. Say hi, Karina. Hi, everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be talking to you because you are kind of a team bird superstar. <laughs> I'm honored to be called. Such a <laughs> Thank you. So Karina, you are kind of a big name in zookeeping and science communication and wildlife education. So I would really like it if you could tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Well, I want to say firstly that good science communication is the reason why I'm in science. Um, so I've always been interested in wildlife, but I wasn't really familiar with what the career is in such a, uh, a field would look like. And then one day someone reached out to me, a black woman at my local zoo, Michelle, um, who is the lead carnivore keeper. And she said, hey, come shadow me behind the scenes at the zoo. I'd never been to a zoo before. When she gave me that experience and showed me what her job looked like, that kind of changed the whole tra trajectory of my career. Um, then when I got to college, I had a really phenomenal teacher for ornithology, which is a class for the study of birds. I was not particularly interested in birds, specifically and definitely not native birds, but because his passion for studying birds and birding and looking at birds was so uh, infectious, I caught on and now I have the bug and I've had it ever since. Um, and so that's kind of how I got started in the realm of wildlife and specifically when it comes to being on Team Bird. That is really awesome. Was there any one bird in particular that like really got your attention, like that you really fell in love with? Absolutely. Um, so the first bird that I was introduced to, he was on the first day of lab, he was going over the, the most 10 most common birds in Northeast Ohio, where I was going to school. And he said, he started with a blue jay. And I had actually never seen a blue jay before. I'd heard the name, of course, but I'd never seen one. And so when the picture popped up, I'm like, what is that? Like, what is that? You know, all these shades of blue, white, black, and everyone was looking at me like I'd lost my mind. But the, the fact that I had never seen a bird that's so brilliantly colored and is actually was all around me without me noticing was kind of my gateway into paying such close attention to the birds everywhere I go. They're so beautiful. And especially like you say, a blue jay, it's something that you think of as being commonplace. But when you actually look at them, they're so striking. They are. They're easily the most colorful, beautifully colored bird in North America. They are really great. So that's how I kind of found you was through you talking about Team Bird. But I've also been keeping up with what you've been doing at your zoos. Like, for example, I really liked your pictures with the binturongs. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wilbur and Willow. So before we get into the animal that we're talking about today, just because we're talking about binturongs and I've never been up close enough to one <laughs> to know for sure, what is the smell like? So um, as some of you may have heard, binturongs are known for smelling like popcorn. Um, and it's a smell that people feel like they want to smell. But when you do, you kind of 
get popcorn ruined for the rest of your life because the smell comes from when their urine contacts their skin and it makes a popcorn smell. So now I don't really like eating popcorn after being like covered in their urine day in and day out for years. So, (laughs) but it is popcorn. Oh my gosh. I had never thought of that, but that's like, that's like equal parts sad and hilarious because like now is going to the movies just completely ruined for you? You know, like it's fine. Like I usually have enough other kinds of snacks to distract me, but I just kind of steer clear from the real popcorn. Sure. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> no, thank you. Well, yeah. So we're not talking about binturongs today. When I reached out to you, I sent you a list of animals that had been requested, specifically of birds. And Harris's hawk jumped out at you. Why yes. Harris's hawk in particular? What is so interesting about them? Well, the Harris hawk is a species of bird of prey that I have had the privilege of working really closely with as a keeper. And I have been able to kind of get a close look at the the intricacies of their behavior, the way their mind works, um, what it's like to build trust with them and to work with them and to fly with them. And so every time I have the opportunity to talk about Harris hawks, I take it. <laughs> yeah, I wanted you to kind of make it your own and talk about what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. So I'm really excited that you have some experience to share with us. So if this is your first time joining us on this particular podcast, we rate animals out of 10 in three categories. And the first category is effectiveness, which we define as physical adaptations that let an animal just kind of do a better job at what it's doing. So Karina, if If you had to give them a score out of 10 for effectiveness, like how well their body is adapted to do what they're doing, what would you give Harris's hawk? Yeah, well, I would give Harris hawks um, probably a an eight out of 10. And it's not because yeah, it's not because they have any physical structures that are like maladaptive or that hinder them from doing a good job. But they rely actually more on their behavior than their physical body, which we'll get to in a little bit, I'm sure. Um, so I'll give them an eight out of 10. They are very good at using the, uh, the, the, the tools they have on their bodies. They've got uh, feet with that are equipped with really sharp talons as all birds of prey do. Um, and they have a locking mechanism essentially in their, uh, in their feet so that it's uh, easier to hold on to prey items and to perches. And they actually have to flex their feet to open their claws um, versus humans. So if we want to grip our hands, we actually have to flex to grip and relax our muscles to release them. So they are uh, full of a, a suite of awesome adaptations. That is really interesting. I had actually never heard that before. So it's kind of like tension loaded, like they have to try not to close their talons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so there have been times when, you know, I'm flying a Harris Hawk and the Harris Hawk is supposed to fly off of my glove and go go somewhere else. But he he can't like ungrip me like he's just stuck because he can't get his own feet to unclench. Um, so unclenching the foot is the harder thing compared to clenching their feet. So very interesting uh, adaptation there. I imagine that probably both helps and hinders them sometimes, right? Like, of course, when you're <laughs> carrying your prey around through the air, you definitely want to have a tight grip. But also if you need like a quick release from your mm-hmm. perch, then it might kind of bother you to have to be like, oh, come on, I can't get loose. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's usually that gripping kind of reflex comes when there's food involved. Usually if they're just flying around and perching, it's it's not so bad. But um, if they are going after or gripping onto a food item, which is usually the case when I'm flying a bird, um, sometimes that mechanism can really engage and hinder them from taking off. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So how like how big a prey could they carry? Uh, so that's a good question. So they typically don't necessarily fly with prey in their in their claws. So Harris hawks hunt typically like in in the desert um, or in more open open habitats um, and they actually hunt in groups. So when they're going after prey, they will there there can be up to maybe like six birds pursuing a jackrabbit, for example, and those jackrabbits can be up to like 15, almost 15 pounds um, because those can get pretty large out there in the southwestern United States where they live. Um, and so when they're working as a team, they can take down prey about that large. Um, they don't usually hunt solitarily very often. That is really interesting. I feel like that doesn't sound like something that I've heard about a bird of prey before. Mm-hmm. Does that sort of set them apart from other birds of prey? Definitely. They are. They have the most... I guess you could say well evolved, more most intricately evolved social system of really any bird of prey, and the um, only bird of prey that I'm aware of that hunts in in, in groups that way. And, one, and not only do they hunt in groups, once they actually like, you know, secure their prey, they will eat that prey together. So they're not fighting, you know, each other trying to just be the single individual on that item. They will eat it and share it together. Oh my gosh, I am so into this. <laughs> this segues really well into our next category that we score animals on, which is ingenuity. So behavioral adaptations that give the animal sort of a competitive edge. It sounds like you would give them a pretty high score for ingenuity. I would give it a 10 without second thought. I would give it an 11. <laughs> if I could. That sounds accurate based on what you told me already. Mm-hmm. So they hunt together. So do they have any sort of like hierarchy system to their social groups or what? Yeah, definitely. So typically a group that lives together, which can include related individuals and a few unrelated individuals at times, is they're matriarchal. So there is a lead female and she's always going to be the one on top. Um, and then there will be... Uh, females under her and males under them. So males are always at the bottom of the totem pole socially when it comes to Harris Hawks. And so usually the female, that alpha female, is the one that's kind of leading the charge on uh, capturing a prey item. Um, But they will all, like I said, work together to uh, apprehend that prey. And there have been, you know, sometimes falconers will hunt and actually went on a hunt uh, a couple of weeks ago with a group of Harris Hawks. And these birds will hunt squirrels out here, for example, and they will together tear apart a squirrel's nest. Um, but they're kind of under the lead of the female. So if they kind of misstep or if they if they do something that she doesn't want them to do, she'll let them know that they have misstepped or they have they have overstepped their boundaries. Um, but they are following the lead of that alpha female. That is probably the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how does that affect when you're keeping them in captivity? Do they do okay on their own or do they need a large group? Like how does that affect your relationship as a keeper with the hawk? So oftentimes these these hawks are housed and kept and flown and trained solid in, in solitude, um, as well as in groups. So they do well, like mentally and emotionally, they're not compromised when they're in human care, if they're housed singly, or if they're housed with a group versus being housed with a group. Um, living in a group is really, is really important for when you're breeding and when you're finding prey in the habitat where they come from. 
um, because these large groups not only hunt together, but they also, you know, do things like feed the chicks, incubate the eggs, um, breed and ward off predators, which so having large numbers of individuals in those situations is very helpful. And if you don't have that, that would compromise your, 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 your fitness essentially. But when you're in human care and you do not have those same needs necessarily, or those same, uh, risks associated with being alone, um, there are no consequences. There are other animals, so other kinds of animals that are social in nature, so primates or other kinds of mammals or, you know, even birds require having other individuals around. So a parrot, for example, you cannot house completely alone with no social interaction, really, and expect them to be okay. Um, but Harris hawks are unique in that they can mentally be just and work just as well and, and be just as healthy alone or with a group in human care. I really like the adaptability that they're bringing to the table. They're kind of mm-hmm. flexible with their living style, you know, because yeah. like with some small animals like guinea pigs or rats or things like that, it's compulsory that they live together, mm-hmm. right? Because if they don't have that social stimulation, then they will get depressed and get very sick and die. But that's really interesting to hear that they're like totally fine either way. They're like, it's fine. I can hang. You can leave me alone. They're like, they're like ambiverts. It's like they don't need to live alone, but it's nice. Yeah, yeah. So when you're training and handling them, do they seem like they'll have a particularly strong bond with one human over another? Like, how is their relationship with the humans that are handling them? So I would say when it comes to Harris hawks, they're not much different than most other birds of prey. And that when it comes to training them, the only association that can be strengthened between that bird and a person is who brings the food Um, with a parrot or more social animals, more social birds. Like there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into them trusting you. Like, you know, how do you look like, what's your demeanor when you come and approach them? A Harris Hawk, as long as you are not an active threat to that Harris Hawk and you are providing food regularly, that's really all that needs to happen. Um, And Harris, Harris Hawks are extremely smart. And so I've, the Harris, I only worked, closely with one Harris hawk and that hawk flew for, you know, like 10, 12, 15 people, different people. Um, And the only thing that we had to do was make sure that he associated us with food and we had to build that relationship and say, hey, I'm a person that brings you food on a regular basis. That's all he needs to know. I can kind of relate to this relationship style because something (laughs) that Christian and I often say to each other is that you know how there are like five love languages, right? Yes. So what it leaves out is our love language, which is food. Sharing food. Yes! I was just saying this. I'm like, how are there five love languages and you don't have food as one of them? Oh, man. So I feel like, much like this hawk, all I need to bond with somebody is just a really good meal. Like, yes. Like, you just share a couple of good culinary experiences, and Mm -hmm. that's really the foundation of a good, positive relationship. (laughs) Yes. Yes, a lot can be learned from working with hair socks. <laughs> and I mean, they've got the matriarchal society, right? Yeah. They've got the women on top. Mm-hmm. Like, I just really think they've got it all together. It sounds like they did. It really seems like it. It sounds like they have figured out civilization. I think they would do a better job. We should just hand <laughs> the reins over to them. <laughs> I cannot disagree with you at all. <laughs> um, how long do these hawks usually live? Yeah. So in in human care, they can live uh, upwards of like 30 ish years. That's kind of pretty high Um, in the wild. It's it can it's lower. Typically, that's how the how it goes. But around 
20 or so years, 15, 20 years in the wild. Okay, that's a pretty long life. Oh, I totally forgot to ask this at the top, but how big are they and what do they look like for people (laughs) who, like me, are completely unfamiliar with them? Yeah, so um, Harris Hawks, let's see. So they can, a a female um, can be up to around... Let's see. They're, females are larger than males. Females can be around like a thousand grams, which is like one kilogram, of course. Um, and the males will usually be about, say, like seven, around 700 or so kilograms in that range. Um, so the females are like kind of appear to be about a third bigger than the males a little bit. Wow. Um, and color wise, they are not really brightly colored or distinctly colored uh, like a like a parrot might be where you can easily distinguish from other from other birds if you're just a casual bird watcher. Um, but what you're going to want to look for is kind of they're they're darker birds. So they've got kind of a reddish series of feathers on their wings near their shoulders and their head neck belly and back are kind of like a dark dark brown very dark brown um and then they have a very characteristic white rump so the the base of their tail on the top and on the bottom has is is white and so that's kind of a way to be able to distinguish them from other birds that live in their in their region and again these hawks are native to like southwestern united states Southwest. Okay, so you're talking like Arizona, New Mexico, California, Mm -hmm. like that kind of area. Yep. And down into Central America. Yep. Oh, very cool. Okay, so I'm in Florida. Oh, cool. So I guess we probably wouldn't see this particular hawk where we live. I think we have red tailed hawks around here that we see a lot. But probably the most common bird of prey that we see around here is ospreys. Oh, you're so lucky. I live in Georgia and we get some, but nothing like Florida, nothing like Florida. So Jacksonville is like right on the St. John's River. And so there's this one particular bridge where literally any day you can go on this bridge and you're going to see like five to 10 ospreys. (laughs) So actually the college that Christian and I both went to, University of North Florida, their mascot is the ospreys. So like all of our school merchandise has ospreys on it and their little like war cries swoop. Oh, nice. So whenever you meet someone from UNF, you're like, swoop. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. It's cute. It's really cute. We crossed this one bridge in Tampa. If you've ever been to um, Tampa, Florida, there is this one bridge that's like a billion miles long, and it has all of these huge light poles on it. Yes, um, I know what bridge you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they actually like made structures on top of the light poles so that ospreys could nest on it. Yes, I remember when I saw that I could not first I just couldn't believe how many the fact that I was seeing an osprey like on literally every single pole down this road down this bridge. Um, but then when I saw I, is that what those were like structures to support the the nests? Yeah, that's amazing. It's wow. really cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the ospreys are really, really neat. And we see all sorts of seabirds, too, like pelicans and gulls and stuff like that. But the coolest thing that you'll see around here is mostly bald eagles. Nice. We don't really see those too often. But so that was a little bit of a bird detour. But to bring it back to Harris's hawk, you just described what they look like, which I think is a good transition into the aesthetic section. So this one is totally opinion based. It's completely arbitrary. It's whatever you want. But so what would you give them? for their aesthetic score i 
I would say I and this is tough because I don't want to just throw out tens willy nilly, but I tend you totally to can. well I love <laughs> I love I love I love like the brightly colored, like really, you know, loudly colored birds like blue jays. Of course they catch my attention, but I also am just like drawn to subtlety as well. Um, which is one of the reasons why I like things like cedar wax wings, which have a couple of bright colors, but mostly just like just sleek and nice. And that's why I like the Harris Hawk. I think the Harris Hawk, even though it is just tritoned, basically has like three colors on it. The way that the colors are laid out, it just gives me chills. Like I, I just love it. And they have like their white tail, their uh, their rump, as I mentioned, is white on the top and on the bottom. Um, and as pretty much all birds have like at their at their anus essentially there's a lot of like really fluffy feathers down there and harris hawks for some reason whenever they like land they shake their bottom oh my gosh every it's like every time and it like wags these super fluffy tails so the combination of the sleek subtlety of their colors and the floof and the tail wag i i have to give them a 10 i have to it sounds like a like a very contemporary aesthetic yes yes yeah a very modern looking bird modern yeah yeah exactly kind of minimalistic but it works Yes. So this is why I think that all birds of prey just have such a beautiful face just by nature Mm -hmm. of like the hook shaped beak and, you know, just like the piercing eyes that always look angry no matter what. I just I just think they're all beautiful. They're all really great. Yeah. And the thing about Harris Hawk is like that that angry look. So the so they most birds have this have this ridge basically above their eye that kind of acts like a visor. But because of where the Harris Hawk lives, they have a very prominent ridge above each of their eyes and so they look really angry but it's like it just adds such like a fierce dimension to their to their stare like you know they've got bright orange eyes and then these really prominent ridges over their eyes that just make them look super like ba you know (laughs) it it gives them like an intensity yes yes indeed so i would imagine that since you said they live in groups and they like to travel as like a little squad Mm -hmm. i would imagine that as a birder that kind of makes them a dream come true right because if they're traveling in groups you're more likely to see them right i i would assume so and you know what i'm like waiting for the day that i get to see these in the wild because I've actually never seen these in the wild. I've only ever worked with them. Um, and so the day that I get to like go out to the to the southwest and like see a group of Harris Hawks will be like I will fall to my knees and cry. I just know it. <laughs> and hopefully they are in, in fact easy to find. <laughs> I would hope so, like if they're traveling in groups, but also in that area, there's just so many interesting birds. Once you get into like the desert, I I find desert animals so interesting because of how they have to adapt to work in such a dry environment, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would really like to see them. So you like go birding a lot and stuff, right? You go out and see a lot of wild birds. And this is something that I have always been kind of like interested in, but a little intimidated by Mm, because it seems like I would just look up there, see a really cool bird and be like, oh, um, it's a brown one. Yeah, (laughs) that's all I got. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any sort of like advice that you would give to somebody that wanted to start birding or anybody who wanted to start like getting involved with either bird watching or just like working with animals in general? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to birding, I think that it is most effective to do it with someone who knows their birds. If you have that resource near you, if you have someone around you or a group even that goes birding or, you know, usually if there's a if there's an Audubon society um, in your area, people definitely go birding. 
burning. But even if there's not, there's almost always going to be birders in your local area in the United States. Um, if you can go with people who already go birding, that is the easiest way to learn. Um, but if you do not have access to people who are, you know, good at, at identifying birds, there is a really helpful app, the Audubon app, um, allows you to input details of a bird you're seeing. So it takes into account where you are in the, in the world. It takes, you can add in, you know, what colors are on these birds, what's the overall shape of the bird and size of the bird, and then it will narrow it down to the possibilities based on what Audubon knows about bird distribution in the U.S. And so it's a really helpful way. I even use that to this day if there's like, especially during migration or um, if there's a bird that I'm just like blanking on, I can't figure it out pop out the Audubon app. Very good, um, a good, very good resource if you're doing a solo birding trip. Um, but when it comes to kind of working with wildlife in general, I always say that it's good to find someone who does what you think you want to do um, and say, hey, can I see what you do? See if you can get an opportunity for ex- for experiential learning. Um, Cause it's really easy to, to kind of look from the outside in on any career and be like, yeah, like that's what I want to do. And then you like spend two hours doing it and you're like, absolutely not. Um, I've, I've seen that happen with like zookeeping because zookeeping looks fun. But then when you realize, Oh, the, mo- the majority of your time is spent cleaning and doing paperwork. Um, then it's like, mm, maybe not as fun as you thought. And I've had people be like, you know, sign up for whole internships and then regret it two days in, you know? Um, so it's just good to like expose yourself. If you can have, if you have any sort of contact with someone doing the thing you want to do, reach out to them and see if they'll let you tag along for a day and kind of get your feet wet, see if it's what you want. And then at that point, start finding opportunities to intern or, um, volunteer if you, if you're able to, or get a job, um, you know, as a, as a technician, if it's something like field biology or uh, as an intern, if it's uh, like a a more structured job like zookeeping. Um, So there are a variety of ways to kind of get into the different kinds of animal fields. I'm really glad to hear you say that because something that I like to talk about is how easy social media has made it to connect with actual scientists, right? Like, Like the whole reason that I'm even talking to you is that like I found you on Twitter, right? Yeah. Because of just how active researchers and scientists and people that are out there doing what you want to do, like they're out there and they're on social media and you could just talk to them, you Mm -hmm. know, like they're, they're cool, nice people. Yeah, yeah. That has been one of the coolest things about social media for me is being able to connect so quickly with so many different kinds of scientists. Yeah, I think there's always kind of been this idea of scientists being this like hidden elite group that's doing all this clandestine research, like off in the shadows somewhere. And so now, you know, you could just hop on Twitter and find the right hashtag and follow 100 scientists. And there you go. Now you've improved your quality of life significantly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, literally. Yep. And I'm grateful for that very reason. It's really cool. So now that we've talked about um, all that stuff, Karina, what are you working on currently that you think people should know about? Um, So right now I am currently doing research as part of my graduate uh, thesis on nest predation and seaside sparrows. And occasionally, like I will, once I'm out in the field, which is during the summertime, and I have that coming up this summer, I'll be posting footage and really cool videos. wildlife encounters that I have out there in Georgia's coastal marshes, because that is where my study system, the seaside sparrow resides. And I am specifically studying, studying nest predation. And so I'll be, I have things like camera traps and video recording equipment on the nests. And so I'm able to look at what's going on, um, 
in the hidden tall grass of the marsh. So if you're interested in that, I encourage you to follow along. Um, I also am doing a project called Save Nut Hatches, which is me and two other wonderful undergraduate women of color, black women. And we have put up nest boxes for brown-headed nut hatches around campus. Um, so hopefully they will pick a few of those nest boxes. And if they do, we'll be putting video cameras in the boxes so that we can record and post footage from the inside of a brown-headed nest, brown-headed nut hatch nest box. Um, so that if you are on Twitter, the Twitter username is save nut hatches um, if, if you are interested. And of course, also your personal Twitter handle. Also, if people want to yeah. keep up with what you're up to, which is <laughs> at hood underscore naturalist. Did I get it right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. So if you if you're interested in the Seaside Sparrow stuff or in, uh, I talk about, you know, random encounters d- during regular everyday life, as well as things like social justice and issues that come to my mind or are in my in my experience. Um, so I a lot of things come across my mind that I want to share, but thankfully science Twitter is a just Twitter and um, they are very engaging when it comes to the intersectionality of science because science isn't in a vacuum. It intersects with our identities, which range for so many different kinds of people. Um, and so we have to talk about those things. So if you're not on science Twitter, I would definitely encourage you to get on science Twitter. Oh, yeah. I think my favorite thing about science Twitter so far has been how it really amplifies and elevates these marginalized Mm -hmm. voices, like especially in STEM fields that that is so underrepresented in, you know, like today, the day that we're recording this, this is Women in Science Day. So there've been a lot of these threads going around boosting the presence of women who are scientists that are on social media. So Mm -hmm. it's been a really cool thing to see, especially in STEM fields where women or people of color or like queer people are not heard from very much. It's it's just really awesome that you have this tool to go directly to them. You know, right. you don't have to go through like an academic journal necessarily, which like, you know, they could they could have their own internal issues. You right. know, you can just go straight to the scientist and hear from them. So that's been my favorite thing so far has been kind of cutting out the middleman and going straight to um, hearing from the scientists themselves. Yeah. It, it really cuts a lot of red tape out of the equation. Well, did you have anything else that like you wanted to add before we wrap up, like about Harris's hawk or what you've been up to or just anything in general? There's one thing, one behavioral adaptation that I forgot to mention about Harris hawks that I love and I think is so cool. I've never seen it in real life because, again, it requires the group. But they do this behavior called stacking, what? which means that, um, yeah, so so they where they live, there aren't very tall trees for like looking around and getting a good vantage point for prey. So they will stand on top of each other no. to make the, the cactus higher. Like, so there'll be one bird like perched on top of a cactus and then two or three more birds will stand on top of that bird's back so that the one on top can have a really good vantage point for looking for, for prey. It's really like they, they really have just mastered teamwork. I wish you could see my face right now because my jaw is on the floor. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah, yeah, they're, they are absolutely incredible. Yeah. I love that so much. You know, you don't often hear people really praise the intelligence of birds of prey. You know, I mm-hmm. think that a lot of birds do get praise for their intelligence, but it's usually either parrots or corvids mm-hmm. or something like that that has displays of intelligence that you can kind of translate into like a human experience. Yes, yes. 
Yes. So this is like they have their own sort of problem solving tools that they've come up with. Right. Wow. Yeah. And it takes like a kind of a detachment from oneself to kind of pick up on these intelligences. You know, one of the best kind of not direct quotes, but pseudo quote that I've heard is like, if you if you are judging a fish's intelligence by its ability to climb a tree, you're going to think it's the dumbest animal. You know what I mean? But if you are looking at all that that a creature has to offer and looking at how it responds to the challenges that it faces, that not, not, not that you face or that your favorite animal faces, but the challenges that that animal faces and see how they solve those challenges, you open up a whole different world of intelligence. Yeah, I did not think that stacking was going to come into play. So that was very, definitely <laughs> yeah. a, a very pleasant surprise. I'm very thrilled to know about yeah. that because the mental image it's giving me is is very pleasant. I would encourage anyone willing to Google it. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> kind of unearthing that hidden intelligence is something we really try to do when we're talking about the ingenuity of animals. Because, mm, you know, like mm-hmm. when you're talking about an animal that that sort of intelligence just might manifest in very unique ways that you really have to probe for. Mm-hmm. And that leads to like these people making very, like, what's the word? Anthropocentric? anthropocentric very human-based i guess intelligence tests and then missing out on these really important things like you know like we saw this with elephants right like it wasn't until just the last couple of decades that we were like oh they're actually so smart yeah yeah exactly exactly well, I think I've made a new best friend today. <laughs> I'm so into good. this. Oh, good, good. They deserve it. <laughs> I think you may have recruited me into having a new favorite animal. This is great. Oh, good. And definitely a Team Bird fan. Maybe we can even get you on Team Bird. <laughs> I, I can't be too partial to any particular like class or phylum or anything. I have to give everybody a fair chance because of how many animals we talk about. But I can be on all the teams, can't I? Yeah, you know what? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Don't let me or anyone else limit you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell that to Team Fish when they try to recruit me. Right. Exactly. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. This has been really fun. I'm so excited to have done this. I've learned a lot and it's been really delightful. So thank you so much, Karina. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. Well, all right. So you have a lovely evening and we will see you later. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.